Good morning, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. We are looking at Mark chapter four as we work through the book of Mark this year. Uh, And I just want to remind you at the very beginning of this book, uh, Mark makes it perfectly clear that he's not just telling us a story about Jesus. He's not just giving us a biography about Jesus. He is telling us about Jesus's life, but he's doing it for a purpose. He's really out to convince us that uh, Jesus was more than a teacher, uh, that he was more than a prophet, that he was more than a religious leader, more than a, a social change leader, uh, more than someone we can just admire or respect from a distance. But from the very first verse of this gospel, Mark tells us that, that Jesus is the son of God. He is the, the true king who deserves our wholehearted allegiance. Uh, that's why we've, we've entitled this fall, Follow the King, because that's really what Mark is urging us to do. That's like the application of every sermon that we're going to give on Mark. It's, you need to follow this king. He, he deserves your wholehearted allegiance. He, he deserves everything you have. He deserves your praise. He deserves your life. And, uh, and yet the way that Mark makes that argument is really, really interesting. He doesn't just, uh, give us that proposition up front and, uh, and then just some other theological categories. He tells us the story of Jesus moving from one place to the next, and, and really, in many cases, from one chaotic scene to the next. In, in just four chapters, we've seen Jesus uh, enter into a scene in which uh, a demon-possessed man comes to him, and Jesus casts out the demon. Uh, much to the surprise of everybody, he walks into a situation that, that calls for healing in several instances, and he brings healing to people's bodies. And, and uh, every one of those instances is meant to be another indication that what Mark says is true, that Jesus really is someone who deserves our allegiance. He has that kind of authority. He possesses that kind of power. But this passage... The passage we just read, which, by the way, is probably the shortest one we've read so far, um, this short passage prompts questions we haven't heard before. Because Jesus is moving into an arena that, for those watching, was was next-level kind of stuff. So we've talked about this briefly before, but I'll just mention it again. Um, In the ancient world, even in the Hebrew mind, so the folks seeing this and, uh, and the original audience for what was happening here, um, the sea was a place of not just great mystery, but um, it was really a symbol of chaos. Um, I mean, just think about the ocean today. I think we all have kind of a mixed relationship with the ocean. On one hand, we go there because it's beautiful and it's sort of like this playground. Most of us, at least in DC, don't get to enjoy all the time. At the same time, there is something really unsettling about the ocean. I remember a few years ago, my family and I were going to go to the Outer Banks, as we often did in the summer. And like two weeks before we went, we got one of those reports that there were shark attacks. And I went to see where they were, and they were pretty much right where we were going. You know, and so I'd love to tell you that two weeks later we showed up and we just kind of enjoyed frolicking uh, uh, on the, in the water. But yeah, like in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, there are sharks in there. And then I'm thinking, what else is in there? Like there's got to be other things in there. This is not my natural habitat, but it is the natural habitat of other things I'm not really interested in, in hanging out with during my, uh, during my, during my summer vacation. And, and then even this past month, and, and I'm sure other 
months, well, I know in, in months past, we've seen the ocean go from a beautiful place to a terrifying place in places like Florida. So these communities that are built on the edge of some of the most beautiful places in our country and are there to enjoy those places are suddenly ravaged by an ocean that turns very angry, very fast. So you've got now like 150 mile per hour winds whipping around and in some cases through your house and waters filling or, and houses filling with water. And so we know something of, of the, the reverence, the, uh, the, the logical fear of the ocean, the sea. Now, in this case, the sea we're talking about is the Sea of Galilee. So it's not like going to, to the beach uh, here on the East Coast, but there is still a, a very much a sense in which what Jesus is doing here has symbolic value. It speaks to his power over chaos. And even if you've never been stranded in a boat, although I'm guessing some of you have, uh, even if you've never been in the middle of a hurricane, I'm guessing some of you have, uh, even if you've never had your life in this kind of physical danger, we all know what it feels like to be in the middle of a life that has gone from beautiful and sweet and calm to chaotic, like in a moment. It just takes a phone call. It just takes a medical test. It just takes a funeral. And all of a sudden you realize that, that your well-ordered life is completely out of control. And this morning, Mark wants to help us process, reflect, think through, even today, if that's where you find yourself, where do you turn when that happens? Because if it hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen. As we look at this passage together, let me pray for us, ask God to help us understand what he has for us here, and then we'll, we'll jump right in together. Let's Pray, Father, as we wrestle with deep questions this morning, we pray that you would be gracious and gentle with us, that you would point us to truth in such a way that we would, in a deeper and more um, significant way, know that you are the truth and that you invite us in not to berate us, not to shame us, but to love us and, and even to draw us deeper into a relationship with you. We pray that you would do that, Holy Spirit, for the glory of Christ in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three questions that are raised in this passage. I think all of them deserve a sermon unto themselves, but for the sake of just keeping it to one sermon, we'll just do three questions in one sermon. Question number one that's asked in, this, in the midst of the chaos, first question, why don't you care? Second question, why are you so afraid? Third question, who is this? Why don't you care? Why are you so afraid? Who is this? Would you agree that each one of those questions, we could spend an hour on each one of those questions. We won't, we won't, I promise. First question though is a question that I think we can all relate to when life goes sideways. Why don't you care? You see, when, uh, when the storm hits in the middle of the sea, Jesus' disciples go to Jesus, and the question they ask him, just to give you the question in full, in, in verse 38, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? 
That's what we call a loaded question. There are all kinds of assumptions behind that question. But what you have to understand is four of the people who were asking that question were experienced fishermen. All right, so we know Peter, Andrew, James, John, they probably grew up on the Sea of Galilee in the family business, fishing on this body of water. They had seen plenty of storms because we know that storms came through this area all the time because of the way the Sea of Galilee is sort of in a a basin surrounded by mountains and wind would whip through and the waves would get high. I mean, these were guys who had seen these kind of storms before. This was technically no big deal. If anyone could handle it, these four guys could handle it. And yet something about this storm is different, right? Something is making them think we've done everything we can possibly do and we can't fix this. You ever been in that situation in life? Maybe it's an area of competency. Maybe it's an area like every other time you've been able to fix it. But this one time you're realizing much to your panic and, uh, and uh, disappointment you can't fix this one. And they're at that point that they can't fix this. In fact, you can almost hear Peter, who we think is the, the person telling the stories to Mark because Mark wasn't there, um, but Peter was there. You could almost hear Peter describing this to Mark years later because we have this kind of detail in verse 37. A great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat. You can almost hear Peter saying, yeah, I mean, like the waves were coming over the sides. It was, they were going into the boat. We were bailing water as fast as we could. But as it says here, the water was already beginning to fill up the boat. And so they do at that point what I think any of us would do if Jesus happened to be in the boat at that time. They wake him up and they ask him a question. Jesus, don't you care that we're dying? Don't you care? You see, it's not just the storm's violence that prompts that question. It's Jesus' indifference. Do you hear the assumption? You don't care. My life is falling apart. I'm sinking. I'm about to die. You don't care. Now, this is not the first or last time anyone ever accused God of not caring about suffering. This is a common response when life gets hard, when life is chaotic, when we are suffering, when we're in great pain, when we think we're in great danger, often our first assumption is that if there is a God, he's either powerless to help or indifferent. Uh, Some of you will know the name Stephen Crane. He was an American author. He wrote The Red Badge of Courage, which you were supposed to read in high school. Um, probably didn't, but uh, that's okay. Um, he also wrote little poems. Along. He died at 29. He died very young. But he left behind a trail of stories and poems that really pretty much articulate a worldview that I would describe as grim. A world in which the universe is cold, impersonal, indifferent to your suffering. One of those poems is a short poem, and it goes like this. A man said to the universe, Sir, I exist. However, the universe replied, That fact has created in me no sense of obligation. Sir, I exist. The universe replies, That fact has created in me no sense 
of obligation. That is to say, pray all you want, cry all you want, complain all you want. Universe does not care. Now, it's one thing for Stephen Crane, and from what I read of him, I don't know what his religious convictions were, but I'm just going to assume uh, he was not really interested in God or anything the Bible had to offer. It's one thing for Stephen Crane to come to this conclusion that the universe is a cold, impersonal place that doesn't care about your problems. It's quite another thing for a Christian to come to the same conclusion. Because as Christians, we believe in the God of the Bible, and the God of the Bible is not powerless. He is all-powerful. He's not ignorant. He's all-knowing, and he's not indifferent. We're told in the Bible that he cares deeply about suffering, especially the suffering of his people. And so we find ourselves in this rather complicated place in which what the Bible tells us about God does not square with what's going on in our lives. So you end up with this question that the disciples ask here, you, you find it throughout the Bible. It's, it's not just the disciples who are wrestling with this. Uh, it's, it's the psalmist. Um, Psalm 10, the psalmist almost blurts out, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself when I'm in trouble? Or Psalm 22 by King David. Yes, that King David, the man after God's own heart, who had the audacity to ask this question, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or Jesus himself, when he is on the cross, stranded, drowning, dying, perishing, takes that same psalm on his own lips. My God, why have you forsaken me? So what I want to tell us this morning is no matter where you are on the spectrum of Christianity, even if you're someone who has walked with Jesus for a very long time, it is not uncommon for those kind of questions to find their way into your prayers too. And you have permission from the Bible to go there. In fact, if you don't know what to pray, the, psalm has, the psalmist has given us two places to go to borrow language from God's word, to complain against him that what we know about him from the Bible does not square with the life that we're living right now. But here's the deal. If you're going to be honest with God, he's going to be honest with you. This is the way relationships work. This is the way marriages work, last I checked. This is the way uh, communities work. This is the way that friendships work. Like, an authentic relationship is not you getting permission just to, like, unload your stuff on the people who love you and walk away and never hear what they have to say. An authentic relationship, a real personal conversation is give and take. We get to unload our, our stuff. They get to unload their stuff. And so when we ask a question like, what the disciples are asking, Lord, why don't you care about what I'm going through? If we're going to be honest that way, we also have to be honest enough to say, I'm willing to listen, to hang in there enough to hear what Jesus has to say back. And by the way, the disciples aren't the only ones asking questions in this passage. So Jesus asks a question. Why are you so afraid?
Why are you so afraid? Thankfully, uh, Jesus is a uh, merciful teacher, and he doesn't have a teachable moment before he calms, or I'm sorry, yeah, right before he calms the storm, right? So this could have gone like this. Jesus, why don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus wakes up, and he has a long conversation while the storm is still raging around them, okay? Because then it'd be like, why are you so afraid? Uh, well, what does he do first? First, he rebukes the storm. That's the language that Mark uses here. He rebukes the storm in verse 39. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. I mean, the image here, I mean, this is not what Mark has in mind, but what comes to mind is the way that you talk to your dog when your dog is being a little aggressive or a little rambunctious. What do you say to the family pet? You say, sit, stay. And the only difference here is that the wind and the waves obey. Like instead of your dog looking at you like, I have forgotten the English language since the last time we had this conversation, I'm just going to go this way. Um, no, Mark makes it very clear. Jesus says to the storm, sit, stay, and it obeys. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. So he wants us to imagine it's not just the wind goes from gusts of wind that almost blow them off the boat to stopping completely. It's, it's, it's the... The water goes from coming over the side of the boat to being completely still like glass. Just imagine that in a, in a second. Jesus rebukes the storm. The storm listens and obeys. But that's not the only rebuking on the menu for the day, is it? Because Jesus then turns to his disciples and he says, why are you so afraid? And a related question have you no faith? Now, some of you are going to say, well, Ryan, you know, I'm not really a person of faith, so that really doesn't apply to me. Have you heard that phrase before? It's kind of cropped up lately in the last few years in, in, in journalism and in polls. People of faith. So people of faith think this, people of faith poll this way, and I get it. You've got to categorize people with religious convictions, but that seems to me to be actually fairly misleading because I would suggest to you, everybody is a person of faith. Everybody. We're all people of faith. And the reason we know that is because all of us deal with life when it's out of control. And all of us do something with that. When we're at the end of our own resources, we put our faith or our trust in someone or something. I mean, all of us do that. And so Jesus is just asking a question that all of us can relate to. When the storms come into your life, when life feels like it's out of control, not just in crisis mode, but just in daily mode of like, wow, uh, my day isn't going the way I thought it would go, and that's really troubling to me. Where do we go? What do we trust? What do we lean on? What do we rely on to get us through that moment when life begins to feel like it's slipping away from us? Why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? And, and then Jesus, we should notice, isn't just asking that question he's leading us toward an answer, right? Because he just stilled the storm. He just rebuked the wind and the waves. And what he's essentially saying is, if you knew who I was, and if you knew how much I loved you, what reason would you have to be afraid right now? That's a big ask. And it leads us to this third question. 
Who is this? I'll tell you, I love this moment in the Gospel of Mark because you have this recognition in an instant that the Jesus they've been palling around with all this time is not who they thought he was. Like all of a sudden, the familiar has become strange. The familiar has become, can we say, a little unsettling because we're told before they ask that question, part of the reason they ask that question in verse 41 is because they're filled with great fear. Their fear of the storm all of a sudden is transferred to a holy fear of Jesus. Like who in the world are we dealing with here? Because in order for Jesus to comfort you when life is falling apart, he has to first unsettle you at some level. He can't just be the Jesus you pal around with and talk to every once in a while and respect as a good teacher. There has to be something about him that is other. And here's how this works in this passage. So these disciples are most likely kids who grew up going to Hebrew school. Okay, so they knew the Bible. They knew the old stories. They knew Genesis chapter one. They know the Bible begins with God creating all things, including speaking the world into existence and even speaking the waters into existence. They knew the questions that God had asked Job one after another after another at the end of the book, including these questions that are really echoing the creation account when God asked Job, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. This is God dictating where the water goes and where the water doesn't go. They knew the story of the Red Sea when God himself parted the waters so that his people might walk through on dry land. He knew the Psalms, like the one we talked about this morning, the voice of the Lord thunders over the waters. They knew passages like Psalm 89, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise and you still them. They knew these passages, but what was unsettling is that the one those passages were talking about was now standing right here. You see, it's one thing for you to have a concept of God as being powerful and sovereign. He's in control of all things. He's got this, right? And we sort of have this conceptual idea that God can control stuff and probably does control stuff. It's quite another thing to come to the realization that that same God of all, who knows all and controls all, who is completely holy and majestic and glorious, is right here. To live in the presence, the immediate presence of the living God, that's a whole nother ballgame. And Jesus will never be a comfort to you in the storm unless Jesus becomes more and more for you the God of all who is right here. And when the disciples realize this, the only question they can ask is, who then is this? Let the wind and the sea obey him. Jesus is doing what only God can do. And this is a loose translation of the Greek. 
it freaks them out. I was talking to uh, my wife Heather yesterday about this passage. We usually have a Saturday chat about the sermon. She gives me some critical feedback, which is good. And, uh, and she said, so um, what's the deal with the cushion? Why is Jesus asleep on the cushion? And um, I didn't really answer that question. I was like, ah, I don't know. I was like, it's ah, a really good question. So I pretended like I had this answer I was going to, you know, surprise her with. And I had to go think of what I was going to say. Um, it's a good question. What is up with the cushion? Why is it there? Well, here's one reason it's there. Because when you read the Gospels, they don't read like stories that are made up. They read like stories that someone told you. And when someone has a traumatic event, and looky here, we have a traumatic event, right? Peter's traumatized in this moment. There are certain details that are burned in your mind. Again, you can hear Peter saying, so like the storm's raging. I'm almost getting blown off the side of the boat. There's water filling up. I go to see where Jesus is. I figured he was bailing water with us. I mean, like, why not? And I look and I see the guy and he's asleep on a cushion. <laughs> my cushion. Like, that's, that's from my house. That's off of my sofa. Like, he, he's, on my, he's asleep. Now, some of you are parents of very little children, and the idea of sleeping through a storm with waves breaking over you, that doesn't sound shocking to us. That's not far-fetched. You can sleep through a lot of things right now. But what's, what what should be impressed in our memory here is the fact Jesus sleeping on a cushion tells us that this God of the universe really stepped into human history as one of us. Because this is the only instance in the gospel in which we're told, actually in the New Testament, in which we're told that Jesus slept. Not that he didn't, but here we're specifically told it as if to contrast the majesty of the one who can command the wind and the waves with the humility of the one who would take on our limits in order to save us as one of us. In order, if I could put it this way, to be in the boat with us. I mean, this is the place we connect with this story. It's not just the awe that we have that Jesus is this powerful. It's the awe that we have that Jesus is this loving and this gracious, that in the midst of every storm that will come your way, Jesus never leaves the boat. And friends, you need to know that this morning, that the storms in your life now, the storms that will come, the storms you've been through, Jesus, he never leaves the boat. So that the question that I want to leave you with, because this passage doesn't resolve, you notice that it's not like, and then Jesus went off and, and, and they had dinner and they talked through it and they're like, they were all good. Like this passage ends in a certain level of tension. It ends with the question. And so I just, I just want to leave you with the question because it's, it's the question that drives us to a place of worship, even in the midst of chaos. It's this question. Who is this? Who is this? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us, even today, a, a deeper insight, a, a, a broader view um, a peek behind the curtain 
of what it means for you to come and to live and, and die and rise again among us that we might have hope that we might place our faith in you even when our lives are falling apart. I pray for my friends here. I, I know I don't know everything that, that everybody walked in here with, but you do. And so remind us, Lord, that in the midst of our fear, in the midst of even sometimes our anger, you are with us. You never leave the boat. Um, and that we can dwell together on this question. Who is this who lives among us and loves us so ferociously. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.